Good evening. Glad to see you guys here and our friends in Edmond and those of you on the live stream. That's kind of a growing community. We appreciate you dialing in to join us as we study the book of Romans. We're literally going to go through one of the most profound and lucid explanations of what is the gospel. And I know that I remind you of this every week, so here's the number to text your questions in during class. I think it's on your handout as well. But if you'll text your questions in, we'll answer as many as we can. This series so far, we haven't had as many questions as we usually do, and I think it's because it's a textual study. But in the lesson starting now, we're going to make a turn and we're going to begin applying the gospel, and that's where things start to get really interesting. So I think our questions will pick up. So let me uh, say a prayer for us, and we'll jump right in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us together to study your word. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and let us reason together. I do pray for all the needs in our congregation of all the people in the sound of my voice that you would be near to us. You would strengthen us in our times of trials and suffering as you are near to us in our times of triumph and rejoicing. Father, I do pray for our country, for our leaders, that you would turn their hearts to you, that you would bring peace, bring some civility to our society, help us to be peacemakers. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in chapter 5 of the book of Romans. I'm going to give you the brief summary of chapters 1 through 4. Chapters, basically, if you remember the story of Romans, Paul is in Corinth, in Greece, and he spent a lot of time there beginning to preach the gospel, and the church starts up, and he hears about believers who are followers of Christ in Rome, capital of the known world at that time. He has never been there, so he writes this long letter. In your New Testament, most of the things that are in there are letters. We call them the Book of Romans, etc., but it's basically a letter. It happens to be a long one, but these are the things that he felt really important to say to them. He wants them to understand what it is they are believing. So chapters 1 through 4, I just picked a few verses. We spent three lessons on this. First begins in chapter 1 with basically the theme statement. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes and I'm going to use the word trust. We've talked about this before. A little better English word to capture what that means. Belief, faith, trust, all the same Greek word. So trust captures in English a little better what they're talking about. First for the Jew, then the Gentile, for in the gospel, in this good news, a righteousness, in other words, a right relationship, a not guilty uh, status from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith or trust from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So you, the gospel, let me remind you, because this is not the way I know you normally think about the gospel. The word gospel means good news. It's not a religious term. In Greek at that time, it was used all the time when somebody says, hey, I've got good news. That's the word that they would use. So what is the gospel? It's the announcement of some good news. Well, what's the good news? It's actually the announcement of something historical that actually happened. And that is Jesus coming to earth, God taking on flesh and living among us. He dies on a cross to bear our sins. He is raised from the grave into eternity and overcomes death and sin. That historical event 
is what the gospel is about. It's saying, I have some good news for you of something that happened that changed everything. I call it a world-altering, life-changing event. That's what this event is, and the gospel is the good news about that. Faith, trust, is trusting in the truth of that and trusting that Jesus did what he said he did and he is who he says he is. Consequently, that act is life-changing. So that's the gospel. Well, right in the very next verse, though, you expect Paul to say, wow, that is so awesome. Let me just tell you how much God loves you. But that's not what he starts with. The next, very next verse, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men or humanity who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Well, what's he saying? He says, listen, let me tell you why that's such a big, uh, big event. Because you might just say, okay, fine, I believe Jesus died on a cross, raised from the dead, so what? He says, well, I mean, without the wrath of God, the gospel is a solution looking for a problem. So what he says is, let me tell you why this is so significant. Because the wrath of God justly covers all of humanity. Now, when we say wrath, we talked about this in the lesson, we don't like that word. Because we think about wrath, meaning being rage, unbelievable anger, and so you are emotionally out of control. That's not what this word is, is about at all. It's not what it's like at all. I gave you the example of basically the way you would feel about a child, for example, being horribly mistreated or something terrible being done. You would have wrath. You would have a justifiable anger that this is not right, and I am angry about this. That's a little more captures what this idea of wrath is. So Paul says, one of the reasons that this good news is good news is because we have a problem. And so he goes through from chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. There's a big stretch where he basically says, and I want to prove it to you. And he acts kind of like a prosecuting attorney. He says, listen, no matter what you know, you still know some things are true and false. And we talked about how psychology really kind of verifies that. Whatever your culture, there are some things that seem to be hardwired into us. Then he says, well, but those of you that say you're moral people, like, yeah, I have a moral code. He says, fine, I'll judge you by your own moral code. And his contention is none of us can even live up to our own moral code. I've found that experientially to be true, and I think he's right. And then he talks to religious people, the Jews of the time, and he said, they said, well, yeah, we're not only moral, we know who God is. And by the way, did I mention to you we're God's chosen people? And basically, Paul says, then have you done what he asked you to do? And he says, no, you haven't. And so what he's trying to say is every single one of us has sinned. We are all justifiably rebels against God. We have gone our own way instead of acknowledging our creator. So he spends that section saying that we have a problem. And then in chapter 3, verse 21, that's the last quote on this slide, he concludes it, he says, but now a righteousness from God, not a righteousness in me, not Terry tried harder, clean up your act and behave better. God himself made a way to be right with him apart from the law, the law of Moses, apart from your moral code, apart from just, hey, get your act together and shape up, clean yourself up so that God will accept you. He said, apart from that. In fact, he said, you can't 
do that. He said, God is the one that had to do it. So a righteousness coming from God has been revealed or made known to which the law and the prophets testify. What he's saying there is basically, he said, by the way, you should know this because the Old Testament's been talking about this plan all along. This righteousness from God comes through trust in Jesus Christ to everyone who trusts him. I know the, I, the way I said that in English sounds a little redundant. That's why they translate it this way. Better English. The righteousness from God comes through faith to Jesus, in Jesus Christ to all who believe. But that's the same word. It means this. In other words, the way to be right with God is to trust in Jesus Christ, and that is available for everyone who will trust in Jesus Christ. Not just Jews, not just Gentiles, not just Americans, not just anybody. Anyone who will place their trust in this good news in Jesus Christ can be right with God. Okay, that's my summary. Do we have any time left? But that's the, that's the essence of the gospel right there. People say, what is the gospel? Well, first of all, I have to tell you, we had a sin problem, and thank the Lord that he made a way for us to be right with him. And you know what the good news is? Let me tell you about something that happened. Jesus Christ bore our sins on the cross, was raised from the dead so that we too can live in newness of life. That's the good news. And so I want you to think about that a little bit and think about it in that way. Don't want you to think about it as a church service or a sermon or anything like that. I don't want you to think about it as a, just a moral code. You have to live a certain way. The good news is the truth of what Jesus did and my trust in that. So chapter 5 turns. And now that you know the gospel, we're going to talk about, well, what are some of the implications of that? I mean, so now that that's true, and, and let's suppose he's writing to believers, by the way. He's not writing this to the whole world. He's writing this to Christ followers in Rome. And so, as a believer, now that I've placed my trust in him, what does that mean, Paul? That's where chapter 5 takes off. One of the prettiest passages. Look at this. This is chapter 5, verse 1. I put it up there in three translations for you. By the way, this is your memory verse. I know that you're saying, whoa, 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 I didn't sign up for homework. All right, I, is this BSF? I mean, come on, you know, I didn't sign up for homework. But you should memorize this verse, and you should preach it to yourself. You should recite it to yourself. Therefore, so everything I just said, he says, this is the good news. Therefore, because of that, listen to this. Isn't this incredible? Since we have been justified, remember I told you the word justified, just, righteous, right, are all the same words. And you'll notice one of those uh, says, since we have been declared righteous, exactly the same meaning. Since we have been justified through our trust in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, because of that event, we have been justified through faith, through trust in Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's going to be the theme of this chapter. It's a sort of the so what now that I trust Christ, what's different? He says, well, number one is you are at peace with God. So let me talk about that word uh, for just a minute. I want to give you a couple of, couple of thoughts here. First one is this, and I mentioned it last time, but I, and if you guys just look really blank, I'll go, all right, fine, I'll drop it. But to me, this is one of the most profound ideas of Scripture. It'll really make a difference in your Christian walk, in your Christian life. And that is this, if you notice chapter one through four, there was nothing in there about how you feel. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm gonna to talk to you about how we feel about God because it's important. But that's not how Paul starts this. 
And I'm glad, and I'll tell you my story. I'll tell you a little piece of my story. And I think it ties into why Paul is saying this. So I didn't grow up as a Christian. Uh, I was, uh, okay, I went through a lot of phases, but let's just say at my terminal phase, I was an agnostic. Thought most reasonable thing to be, still think it's the most reasonable thing to be, I just don't think anybody lives it out. But I was an agnostic. I was like, well, you can't really know whether God exists or not. And so I'd been reading a lot of things, finally read the Bible, go to church a little bit. You know, I'm checking this out, I'm checking out all these things that purport to tell me the meaning and the purpose of life. So I end up, did the Bible last, because I decided none of those other things had a firm foundation. You know, one guy would say, this is the way you live, another guy would say that way, and I really couldn't tell that either one of them could definitively say, this is the way. So go to church, read the Bible, Jesus says, I am the way. And I said, fine, let's check this out. So what I begin to notice is as people talk to me about it, they, they talked a lot about how it made them feel. And now, looking back, I go, I, I totally understand that. Because when you meet Jesus Christ, it changes your head, it also changes your heart. But remember, I was a skeptic at that point in time. I knew people, this is in Kentucky, who handled snakes in church. You know, so I'm kind of skeptical. I mean, I'm not joking about that. And so I'm just saying, I'm a little skeptical. So when I get there and people tell me, hey, I, you, know, you can feel Jesus. Can't you feel this? Come on, sing with us and you'll feel this. And I thought to myself, number one, I remembered Karl Marx said, religion is the opiate of the people. So I'm really distrustful. I'm like, yeah, I know. Religion is how you keep people satisfied and occupied, according to Marx. And that would be give you a good feeling all the time. Then I remembered also having read uh, in, in the Freud, his basic idea about Christianity, but religion in general, but Christianity was that God is, it's just a big wish fulfillment. In other words, you're looking for a father that loves you and will protect you. And so Christianity was just an emotional crutch, if you will, right? So I'm th sitting there thinking, that's fine. But I also look and I go, I'll bet Muslims get really emotional about their faith. I'll bet Buddhists get emotional about their faith. So my only point to you is that was not working for me. It's like, I appreciate that you feel that way, and I know your feeling is genuine, but that's not enough for me to base my life on. Well, I appreciate that Paul, for me at least, begins the good news the way he does. He doesn't say, Terry, this is all going to be based on how you feel. He doesn't say that. What is the gospel based on? It's based on what's true. It's not making the claim that you will feel better. It's not making the claim that your life will go better. I appreciated that because I'd read a bunch of stuff that did and I don't think it worked. What it said was, you should believe this because it's true. And that's what chapters one through four do. The good news, the gospel is not a philosophy. It's not a self-help book. It's basically saying, this is a historical event. And I'm gonna tell you what the significance of that historical event is. I'm gonna tell you that you have a terminal sin problem. Nobody needed to tell me that, right? I already knew that I wasn't the man I wanted to be before I was a Christian. And so then it says, Can you, do you believe then that this is possible to be reconciled to God? I came to believe because I believed that it was true. Now, is emotion important? It absolutely is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? Whole body, whole person. But Paul is going to address this first on the basis of this is true. And I think that's a powerful way to start the gospel. 
Well, when you talk about peace, you're still in this version. Sometimes you think about peace as a feeling, but this is not making that argument. It's not saying, therefore, since we've been justified with faith, we have this feeling of peace. What the Bible is saying about the gospel and this peace is this is an objective reality, whether you happen to feel that way about it at the moment or not. And I don't know about you, but to me, that is powerful because my emotions go up and down, usually depending on whether I have two shots or three shots in my uh, espresso in the morning, right? You know, you go up or you go down. My point is our emotions go up and down. I may feel like I'm being a good Christian today. I'm being a very bad Christian today. Oh, I don't know why God would accept me or yeah, in other words, I think we've all experienced that. We experience it in most of our relationships. What this is saying is that is an objectively true statement regardless of how you feel. If you put your trust in Jesus Christ, that is true, and you should preach it to yourself when you don't feel that way. Therefore, since we have been justified through trust in Christ, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's saying peace is not a subjective feeling. It is an objective reality. You are at peace with God. Now, sometimes we think of peace as being the absence of conflict. That is not really what this word is talking about. It's talking about more than that. Let me give you an example. So say you and your spouse are having a fight. I'm really kind of talking to the men here. So uh, say you and your spouse have a fight. And so that's not good. That's not peace. So then you don't have a fight anymore, but you're getting the silent treatment. Or maybe you're giving the silent treatment, but just bear with me. You're getting the silent treatment. Well, that's the absence of conflict, right? And some of you are going, hey, that's fine. I'll take that. No, you won't take that. So you're getting the silent treatment and you go, well, yeah, I guess it's the absence of conflict, but it's not really what I'm looking for in this relationship, right? This word means more than the absence of conflict. This word means harmonious well-being. Think of it more like shalom. In Hebrew, the word shalom, which means peace, is talking not just about, I'm not at war, we're not arguing. It's talking about, I feel like this is we're in harmony, things are the way they should be. In other words, peace has a deeper meaning than just not being in conflict. It has that, you know, kind of a, as the eagles would say, a peaceful, easy feeling, right? It's not just a feeling, it's an objective reality of your status with God. And not only is it God's not wrathful at me, I know he no longer looks at me and sees my sin because Jesus dealt with that. He actually, we have a great relationship. It's more than just the absence of conflict. This is the hinge in the book. He's going to say, since that's true, here are a lot of other things that are true. And whether you feel them or not, they're still true. And I really want you to hold on to that idea because this is rooted in actual fact, not rooted in how you feel at the moment. And sometimes I feel like, honestly, we need to preach that to ourselves. Memorize this verse. Really easy to do. One of the most powerful verses uh, around. So what I'd like to do is go through, uh, the uh, microphone is right there. What I'd like to do is pause for a question. Who was the letter actually sent to in Rome? Who was the letter actually sent to? It went to a P.O. box based on the original document. I'm just kidding you. You know, it, it's uh, I, we don't know who it was sent to. When we get to the end of the book, you'll see who's taking it. It's not like you put a letter in the mail. 
and it's not like you email it. It's actually kind of more like, do you ever guys ever get the, this off the subject, but he hit a pet peeve. You ever get those emails from places that say, this is an automated email, do not bother to reply? I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. You're telling me something I don't like and you won't even let me talk back? Well, it's kind of like that. It's sort of like, boom, throwing it into Rome. Seriously, this obviously went to somebody who was one of the Christians in Rome. The way churches worked then is they didn't have a big building where everybody could meet, but they did know each other. And so they typically met in houses at this stage. And so you'd have anywhere from a dozen to, you know, maybe two dozen people, but there would be groups of Christians. So when he says the church in Rome, what he's really talking about are the groups of believers in Rome. Because even if you have 20 of them meeting here and 20 meeting here and 20 meeting here, they're all the church. So we don't know exactly who it went to, but we do know the practice was to get this letter. They, they copied them, by the way. They would hand copy these letters, but then they would go read, they'd circulate it and they'd all get to read it in their church services. By the way, that's pretty much what church services were, were reading these letters uh, from them. So good question. We don't know exactly who it went to. It's not like there was a specific address for the church building in Rome. Good question. Well, I just want to walk through chapter 5, and let's just talk about some key ideas. So, chapter 5, 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom, Paul writes this well all the time, by the way, every sentence is going to jump off of the last word of the sentence in front of it. He's the, like, he would get an F in English class because he just runs on from one topic to another. But watch, it flows pretty nicely. It flows really nicely in Greek, but it's also good in English. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith or trust into this grace in which we now stand. In other words, we now stand in a state of grace before God, no longer in a state of wrath. We now stand in a state of grace, which is like a benevolent goodwill. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But not only that, we also rejoice in our sufferings. Whoa, this just took an ugly turn. We also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. Kind of sounds like Yoda. Any fans out there? Yeah, okay, that fell flat. Never mind. All right, so you get the idea here. He says, look, we have this hope in the glory of God because we stand in this right relationship with him. He says, but not only that, and this is powerful. He's saying, you aren't standing here as Christians saying, well, I have hope that after I die, I'm going to go to heaven, but I'm kind of on my own here. This is rebutting that. It said, oh, no, no. Your hope is not just for heaven. Your hope is for here. In fact, you can rejoice. You don't have to wait till you get to heaven to rejoice. You can rejoice in the difficulties of this life because it's going to produce perseverance and character and hope in your life. And that hope will not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. First mention of the word love in this book. And now it's going to dominate the rest of the book. He said, I want to tell you the truth of the gospel. Now I'm going to tell you why it happened. It's because God loves you. This is really interesting, this idea of suffering. It's not new. It's not unique. This is all over. Here's James chapter 1. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, meaning my fellow Christians, 
whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Same thing Paul said. This is James, another disciple. Perseverance will finish its work in you so you'll be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Here's Peter, another one of the apostles. He said, you greatly rejoice in your salvation. That's what he's been talking about. And so this idea of going to heaven, even though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. He said, let me tell you why these trials happen, so that your faith, and by the way, to God, your faith is of greater worth than gold. He said, your faith, your trust might be proved genuine and result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So my first point here is, this is a consistent idea throughout all of your New Testament. It's saying something pretty profound. It says, I'm saved, I get to go to heaven. He goes, oh, that's the least of what's happening. You actually, it's going to change everything now, not just in heaven. And it's going to change some things and turn them upside down. It's going to make even the trials of your life, you will, you will be able to be joyful. Here's where, let me go to Tim Keller says this pretty well. Therefore, Paul is saying, this goes back to one of the points I really want us to get, that you can know objectively and beyond all doubt that God loves you, even if your feelings or the appearance of your life circumstances might be prompting you to wonder. Think about that for a minute. That's exactly what this is saying. It says, since you've been justified by faith, you have peace with God and Jesus Christ. And you know what? You can even rejoice in sufferings. How can I do that? Usually when I'm suffering, I'm thinking, what did I do wrong? He's saying, no, no, no. You objectively know that God loves you. He has poured out his love into our hearts. Even if your life circumstances don't seem to be reflecting what you would wish it to be. That's the Christian view of suffering. The world's view of suffering is when I was a Buddhist, the basic idea there is you overcome suffering by just denying it exists. It's not real. In other words, everything you see, you guys are not real. You're figments of my imagination. Or am I a figment of yours? I don't know. But the point is, you know, you're going to deny it. Or our culture is, yep, suffering's real and it's bad and you should do everything you can to avoid it. Christianity says you can try that if you want to, but you're all going to suffer. Instead, you can actually rejoice in it because now you know that suffering has a purpose, that God is not deserting you. God is using it to make you even more glorious. You notice in that passage, it talks about the glory of God and our glory twice in that passage. The other thing, uh, by the way, Keller makes another good point. I, I think I agree with this. Joy is the marker of the justified person meaning the one who is right with God. Since we've been made right through our trust in Christ, he said joy is the marker of that person. And I know some of you are squirming going, I don't know if I'm joyful all the time. I understand that, and neither am I. But that's not because God hasn't done his part. Well, should I try harder? No, trust more. Don't try harder, trust more. Joy is the marker of the justified person. It is unique to Christianity, and that is true. It does not depend on our circumstances or our performance. That's profound. Keller's saying something really profound there. It's what we've just been talking about, is your status with God is independent of your performance or your feelings. And so I can be joyful even in circumstances that are 
That, I'm not joyful because of what's happening. I'm joyful because it can't disturb my relationship to God. That's not true. In most of the religions that you know, that is not a true statement. I mean, basically, if you don't perform well, you no longer have the favor of God. That's not true in Christianity. So I really want us to say, this is what I know to be true, and I want our brain to preach to our heart, not the other way around. Because, now we're going to get down where the rubber meets the road, I love this passage. You can memorize this one too. Do not be anxious or worried, same word. Don't be worried about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And here's where I want to make the tie-in to what we're studying. And the peace of God, which is beyond your understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. It's appealing to this objective reality of your new status with God. It says you don't have to be anxious or worried because none of the things that are happening can disturb your relationship with God. Instead, pour out your heart, your frustrations, your fears, your anxieties, pour them out to God, and then rest in the sure knowledge of the peace of God in your life. That's what all these verses mean. The reason I'm trying to quote a few things is I want you to understand what Paul's talking about in Romans is the gospel. It's all over the New Testament. Everything in the New Testament is going to tie into this. These ideas aren't just unique to this letter. This is the gospel. It fits into everything that we're going to talk about. So I want to home in on this idea of suffering for just a minute. So you get the idea of there are kind of three phases. In fact, let me just show you the Exodus motif. This is the map that's on your page, and I want to link the Old Testament to the New Testament now. So we're going to go back to about, according to traditional dating, 1400 B.C., so let's go back 1,400 years before the time of Christ. There's a historical event. You have Jews, Israelites, is what I'm going to call them now. They are slaves in Egypt. This is back in the book of Exodus. So they're a large group of people. They're slaves. They cry out to God. God hears them, and they are enslaved. They're not free to do what they want. Their only destiny is work hard all your life, and then you die. So if you remember, God sends a deliverer, sends Moses to them. Moses dukes it out with the Pharaoh. End of the story, through God's power, not through the Israelites. Israelites, they don't go get their shotguns. They don't go get their assault weapons. They have no weapons. They can't stand against the army. God wins the battle for them, right? Red Sea parts, they walk across. Pharaoh comes through, psh, everybody can't swim. So basically, you have the exodus, the going out. So Moses, a God-supplied uh, deliverer, and God delivers them, and they cross the Red Sea, they go down to Sinai, they get the Ten Commandments, but basically they wander around 40 years, then they go to the Promised Land, right? They go to the land, of the Promised Land, Canaan, the land of Israel. So three parts. Slavery, God through his power brings you out 40 years in the desert, and then you go to the promised land, the land of milk and honey, the land that is yours. I want you to think about the gospel. That, by the way, that little storyline is called the Exodus motif, M-O-T-I-F, the Exodus motif. Slavery, bondage, death is about all you've got to look forward to. 
a time period of purification, of being in the desert. It's also a time of, of struggle and suffering and you know, putting off the old world and looking ahead to the new world. So for them, it was 40 years. And then you enter into this promised land and the life God promised. That's the Exodus motif. That motif, that whole thing happened so that when Jesus Christ came, you could understand it and everybody goes, whoa, I have seen this story before. Wait a minute. That's the gospel. Here are you and I. Where are we? Sitting under the wrath of God. We are captive to sin. We are all chasing about in our own desires and the world is not a very nice place. We are under the wrath of God because we have turned our back on him. So here we are, slaves to sin. We can't even get out even if we want to. We can't make ourselves right with God because we can't act good enough to do it. So here we are, captive. Deliverer comes from God, Jesus Christ. God makes a way to get us out of slavery. That is the good news of that gospel event, right? Now, at the end, I'm going to skip to the third part. Heaven, the promised land, living with God, is the third part. But here in the middle, what is this life? It's the desert experience. And I don't mean that in a way that it's going to be miserable all your life. My point is, in the Exodus motif, this is the time when we are putting off the sin and all that stuff. If you remember the story about the Israelites, as I've said before, you can take the Israelites out of Egypt, but it takes a while to get Egypt out of the Israelites. Well, you can take the sinful man out of Terry, and you can make me right with God, but I've got a path to continue to shed the sinful practices in my life to become like Jesus Christ and enter the promised land. Do you see, does that make sense to anybody but me? The Exodus motif is the gospel. Where are we? We're in the middle. We're in the desert part, right? And so that's kind of what's happening here. Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble. He didn't mean every single minute you'll have trouble. No, that's why God created Monday Night Football. There are little moments of sunshine in our lives, right? He doesn't mean, oh, you're going to be miserable to be a Christian. That's not his point. He just simply said, there's going to be trouble in this life. And there's no way for you to escape that trouble. No matter how much the secular world says, I'm going to escape pain and suffering and disease, etc. I don't know about you guys, but I haven't seen anybody who's lived forever out there. You know, nobody gets out of this thing alive. So everybody's going to suffer. Everybody's going to have some difficulty, emotional difficulty, financial difficulty, health problems. They happen. We have joys also. I'm not trying to minimize it. But my point is Jesus told us because this is that part of the journey. Now here's the difference. Without Christ, it's like good luck in the desert. With Christ, what this is saying is you are now right with God and you are going to get to the promised land. So you know that. So now when you encounter these difficulties, you realize this isn't random. This isn't meaningless. God is actually able to use this to make me even more ready to get into the promised land. That's what this is teaching. It said the gospel changed even the suffering in your life. It's life-changing, world-altering event. Now, instead of, oh, wow, that's terrible things are happening and that's just bad luck, sorry. I just endure it, Terry, I guess, right? Frederick Nietzsche, secular philosopher, that's actually an understatement, atheist of atheists, right? One of his great quotes, died insane, 
in 1900 AD. So, well, which has nothing to do with this quote, but anyway, but basically, just wanted you to know things turned out really well for Frederick. But basically, he said this. He said, the thought of suicide will get you through many a dark night. Now, you think about that for a minute. That's true if you're going through the desert and you have no way to deal with the suffering and the difficulties. Your only option that you ultimately have is suicide. And that's sad. It's happening in our world, isn't it? It's happening actually statistically in our country more and more. And that's because there is no hope. The gospel says that event changed everything. Even my suffering, I realize that God will use that to develop perseverance. He's going to actually use this bad event. It's not a good event. God is not happy that we suffer. But he says, I can take that and make you even more ready. And trust me, you will get to the promised land because he is able to do it not me, makes all the difference in the world. Make sense? This, I want you to just think about this idea of suffering is really different in a Christian world. And the reason you can rejoice, I mean, be joyful. It doesn't say, oh, be happy and smiling and cheerful. It just says, you know what? You can be joyful because you know it is objectively true that nothing can change that relationship because you didn't do anything to get it. Jesus Christ did. That's a powerful good news. That is a good news that if we tell that story right, we tell that story this way, you know there are millions of people in this country that are dying to get that good news. It really still is good news. It swept the world in the first century. It's going to sweep the world in the 21st century. Okay, that's getting preachy. Let's move on. That is a beautiful passage, okay? But here, listen to this. Then it goes on. He says, you see... First of all, so what is he saying? He said, therefore, since we have been justified through faith and uh, faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on, he says, and even in our suffering, you can have joy. This is amazing. And he goes on, he says, you see, in other words, let me explain some more, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, in other words, I could never measure up. I could never get my relationship back. It's not like you buy flowers and say, honey, forgive me. You know, it's, we could never get right with God on our own. At just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely, this is some of the best depths of God's love, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, maybe somebody would dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you don't understand wrath, that is just words on a page. Once you understand, oh my goodness, I had no hope, and in fact, I wasn't lovable. I know sometimes we kind of have what I call kind of a Care Bear theology. It's sort of like God's up there looking at us and, oh, you little rascals, you're just out there sinning, but you got a good heart. No, we don't. We don't have a good heart. Just pick up the newspaper. We don't have a good heart. There's evil, to some extent, lurking in all of us. And so what it said was, when we were not even lovable, when we were not cute, when we were not anything, Christ died for us in that state. The closest thing that I can give you as an analogy to that, and it's, it's going to be far, far short, closest thing I can give you an analogy to that. And by the way, I've, I've struggled with the idea of God, you created the universe. 
and you could have done this any way you wanted. We could have made new people completely as adults, potty trained, just like you can do it any way you want, but no, we're going to do children. And I'm like, is that just a bad joke? You know, is that part of the wrath thing or what? But the love for parents for their children is one of the things that I think, and I think God did it intentionally to say, here's a little snapshot of what my love for you is like. And I know as strong as that is to you and me, you think, wow, look at that. Here's a great story. Uh, hopefully my wife will forgive me for telling you this story. Okay, so when one of our children, whom I will not name, was really little, we were young parents, and uh, you know how little kids, you know, little babies are? And in those days, let's just say diaper technology was not as good as it is today. And so we were at church on Easter, and we get there a little bit late, Never happened to us before. Anyway, we get there a little bit late, and so we scooch in literally to the middle of the longest aisle in the world, right? We're in the middle, sit down. Laura is gorgeous. She's got this, if I remember right, she'll probably tell you my memory's wrong, but here's my memory. Beautiful pink outfit on, got the baby. You know, here we are sitting down. All is right with the world. This is what peace with God must really be like. Okay, so at that moment, of course, child has a blowout. Okay, you know, and basically what that means is he's exceeded the technological limits of the diaper, right? So <laughs> has a blowout. Well, Laura looks down and visually realizes that there's been a blowout. And so she says to me, look at this. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's bad. <laughs> Easter dressed up in the service. So a good husband would have said, okay, let me take the baby and, and, and I'll go out, you know, and I'll be embarrassed and I'll go take care of this. But I'm not. So anyway, so she gets up with this baby, beautiful outfit, scooches down the, uh, you know, the aisle. Everybody's like, what's that smell? Yeah, and walks right out. And that child is still alive. And so that's my point to you. Even when we were unlovable, God loved us. And when your kids are unlovable, you love them. I think that's God planting in us a little bit of a taste of what his love for us is like. And that's what this passage is saying. He says, you know, since we have now been justified by his blood, he's talking about that historical event, the cross. He bore our sins, he shed his blood to pay for our sins. How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? In other words, God had a righteous wrath, but if we've been saved by his blood, that's going to cover that wrath. For if when we were God's enemies, and don't kid yourself, when you, are, when you and I are self-centered, we are God's enemy. We are rebelling against God. If when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more? Now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice, there's that word again, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. By the way, notice this word starts to appear. The idea of reconciliation or reconciled shows up here uh, three different times in this passage. So first of all, you just have to camp out on this. This is Romans 5, 6 uh, is just a beautiful passage. 
You know, it's like John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. This is while we were still God's enemies, Christ died for us. And so he's giving us the truth of the gospel in chapters one through four. You need to know the truth about who we are or God's not really very much of a God. But when I realize how low I am, then I realize how high God is. I'll tell you, Keller has another good quote, and I know I've quoted him a lot, but he has, he has some pithy things to say on this. He said, basically, the gospel, you can kind of summarize the significance of this is that the truth is this. We are more evil than we ever thought and we ever feared, and we are more loved than we ever hoped for. And that is exactly right. That is exactly what Paul is saying. He said, you know, you actually were more in rebellion of God than you ever thought, than you ever dared think. And you were actually more loved by God than you ever dared hope. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And it's objectively true. So tomorrow, whether you feel lovable or not, that doesn't change the truth of anything about the gospel. That's why Christians can be joyful. That's why we can go out with assurance and say, no, of course I still sin. Nevertheless, because of my trust in Jesus Christ, that doesn't change the subjective truth. We'll get to that a little more in a second. But this idea of reconciliation, now stop and think about it. We've moved from kind of a judicial sense. In other words, I have these sins. Think about it like warrants out for your arrest. Or better than that, warrants out for your death penalty. Right? Okay. And God has removed them for Jesus' sake. That's kind of what we call a judicial sense of being justified, and that makes sense. In other words, I'm now righteous, I'm right, meaning God, you know, look, the judge looks at you and says, you're fine, the law has no issue with you, you have no warrants, you are innocent. So there's a judicial sense, but when you get to this world reconciled, you realize, wait a minute, righteousness, being justified, being made right with God is not just judicial, it's not just a transaction, it's relational. Reconciled is a relational word. And that what he's saying there is now, not only is God okay, he's not looking for me, right? It's he wants to see me. We have a great relationship. And if you think about it, that explains all the family language through the New Testament. As you read your New Testament, which I hope you are doing, is just keep reading your New Testament, and you're going to come across adoption language. You're going to come across children of God language. You're going to come across being in the family of God language. We're reconciled to God. In other words, we join the family. We're not just no longer wanted felons. We're now members of the family. This is the picture, both judicially and relationally, that we see with God. But here's an interesting thing. Three things I'd say about reconciliation. Reconciliation is deeply personal. And this is where I want to engage the heart. In other words, the gospel is not appealing to how I feel. It's telling me some objective truth. The result of that objective truth, when my head starts telling my heart, hey, I have some good news for you, buddy. I know you've been up and down lately and you don't always feel good, but I've got some truth to tell you. Now I feel reconciled. I relationally feel this well-being, this peace with God. And so the head and the heart get engaged because of that objective truth. And you're going to see a lot of now emotional language as well as truth, objective truth language. This idea of being reconciled, it's deeply personal. It's motivated by God's love for you. 
In other words, you can't reconcile yourself to God. He has reconciled you to him because he loves you. That's an intensely personal and emotional thing. He has this love for us. But reconciliation was very, very costly. Every sin gets paid for. No sin gets marked off the books without a penalty. Only one of two things is going to happen. You and I are going to pay for our sin. There's a lot of judgment language in the New Testament, and that is when you appear before God, if you're holding your sin, you're doomed. Or Jesus Christ is going to pay for our sin. And that's the good news, is that if I will trust him, he has borne my sin. So reconciliation was very costly. And sometimes I think when we get angry with God, like, hey, why am I suffering? Why is this happening? Why do I not have good Wi-Fi? You know, why is my cell phone battery so bad? You know, I mean, we do whine, let's just face it. Okay, I whine. This is group therapy for me. My point is, you think about that reconciliation, that peace I have with God, that was very costly. It was way more than I could have ever paid. And so when we talk about rejoicing in sufferings, some of this is just putting it in perspective is, look, I have peace with God and I'm reconciled with him. In fact, I am a child of God because I am a follower of Christ. And you know what? These sufferings, Paul's going to say this later, but I've got to preview it because it's so good. I consider the sufferings of this present world to be nothing compared to the glory of God. And when you think about that, you realize I can look at the difficulties in my life differently and it makes all the difference to me. So that's uh, the first part of chapter five. The last part, I'm only gonna hit lightly because then he goes into kind of a more of a theological idea, but this is really interesting Old Testament connection. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, in other words, we were not intended to die, but when sin entered the world, so did death. And every one of us will walk through the door of death to move to wherever we go next. I mean, in terms of judgment day, in terms of the promised land, it was not intended that we would decay and die and be diseased and have violence. That was not God's intention. That came through sin, entered the world. So just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death came to all men because all have sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. Sin's not taken into account when there's no law. That's really interesting, but I don't have time to talk about it. But nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even those who did not break a command. But the gift, now we're talking about grace. The word grace also means gift, by the way. It's same same word, they're cognates. The gift is not like the sin. For if the many died because of the sin of Adam... How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of Jesus Christ overflow to many? This is brilliant. It said, one man sins and death enters the world, and sin taints us all. If for no other reason than we have committed sins. And so death is our destiny. And yet one man then bears the sin of the world, and many receive the gift of grace. And so Jesus is kind of an antithesis of Adam, whereas Adam was not faithful. He did not obey God. He chose to go his own way. He said, I will do what I want, not what you want. That's rebellion, and that is sin enters the world. Jesus Christ came and obeyed God. Remember Philippians? That's another letter in the New Testament. Chapter 2 says, 
Jesus left equality with God and humbled himself and became obedient, taking on the form of a human being and being obedient even to the point of death on a cross. So in Adam's disobedience, sin and death enter the world, and Jesus Christ's obedience, life enters the world. And so he, he wants to make that picture so you can see, by the way, he's saying this good news is part of a much bigger plan. This plan started when sin entered the world, and God said, I love you, and I want to recapture you or reclaim you. We use the word redeem you, take you out of captivity to sin, and bring you back to... There's, it's not a coincidence that in Genesis chapter 1, you have Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and it sounds nice. And in Revelation, very end of the Bible... Chapter 20 and 21, heaven is used, is, is described in Garden of Eden language. And so what he's saying is what Adam did in his disobedience, Jesus Christ made right in his obedience. So he's trying to draw you a big picture. And I don't know if that's useful to you or not, but I like to see the fact that, you know what, the Bible's not just a collection of letters, not a collection of different people writing things. There is a serious thread through this. God has got a plan, and that's powerful to me because he has a plan for us, he has a plan for you and me. And that's where it gets personal to me, is when you're talking about dealing with difficulties in life, and I know in my head that that cannot disrupt this, even if I might feel far from God sometime, I know that is not true. I also know that God has been planning this for so long, he knew these troubles were coming for me. He knew these difficulties, these temptations, these failures, these difficulties of whatever kind, this grief, this suffering was coming, and he knows where I am, and he is able to turn that into perseverance and faith and hope. So I really would like you, and that's the first thing Paul hits. After he tells the gospel, what does he say? I want you to know you now, have peace with God, whether you feel that way or not. And he said, and I know the first thing that's going to make you doubt is as soon as you go out of here and you get in traffic on the Broadway extension. He says, I realize that everything I've told you, your belief, your trust is going to be challenged as soon as you hit some hard times. I think that's why right away in chapter 5 he says, and I'm going to tell you how that's all changed. You can have joy even in those circumstances. Does that make sense? I think that's why he talks about suffering right away. Okay, here's the question. This is probably in your mind, because it's in my mind. It was in my mind as a skeptic when I read this. I said, okay, that sounds too good to be true. And here's why I thought that. Okay, so fine. So Jesus Christ dies to bear my sins. He's raised from the dead. I trust him. I trust that. In fact, I'll follow you. In other words, I trust you, I will obey you. I mean, that's what Abraham did. He said, do you trust God? Yeah, then do what he says. Okay, then I will follow you. And then I realized, wait a minute, I didn't wake up the next day perfect. I still sin. There's still pieces of that old sinful man, so to speak. Think about the Exodus. We came out of Egypt, but it's not out of me yet. And so I'm not perfect. I still sin. Oh, no. What does that mean? Does that mean it didn't work? That's why you see people getting saved over and over, right? It's like, well, it must not have worked. I better go get saved again. Hey, Church of Christ, no offense. I was there. That's where I became a Christian. 
we'd routinely get saved over and over, or at least rededicate our lives because we felt like, oh, I'm not acting the way I'm supposed to act, so it must not have taken. That's not what the Scripture says, but what does the Scripture say? What is the deal with how, what are you going to do about Christians who still sin even after they become Christians? Are you still saved? Are you still going to get to the promised land? Have you gotten lost in the desert? And you look around and nobody's there. I mean, what, how do you deal with sin in a Christian life? That's our next chapter. That's the next thing he's going to talk about. If I'm saved, reconciled, going to heaven, whatever, then what happens when I still sin? Is that allowed? Do I need to do something about that? Should I just keep on sinning because, hey, Jesus already took care of all of that? How do Christians deal with sin? Now, I realize there's probably, probably not many people here next week because most of you are going to go, not a problem for me. (laughs) I will be here talking to myself. What do I do with I still sin? Chapter 6 is my favorite. Well, it's like one of my favorites, like way up there. Chapters in the Bible. This is just a brilliant answer to that question. And I'll give you a preview. It is not what you think. The answer to this question is very different than what you think. And that's what we're going to talk about next time. So go in the sure knowledge that you have peace with God, you are loved by God, and your circumstances and your feelings don't change that. God bless you guys.